Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I am joined by Jules Kortenhorst, the CEO of Rocky Mountain Institute, to discuss how corporate America can be guided toward a greener economy. Jules explains the positive impact an energy-efficient building has on its tenants, on the environment, and on the economy. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Jules, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from? I'm uh, back home in Boulder, Colorado at the moment, today in the office, which is a rarity, but I was doing so many of these recordings, I said I'm going to go where there is the, the stable internet. And I believe it's a carbon zero office, as you were telling me about beforehand as well, right? This is a net zero building. Yeah, this is, uh, this is not our own building. This is one that, uh, where we rent, but we help design it. And it's got solar panels, not just on the roof, but on the east wall. It's very energy efficient, and it's a great building. We're even prouder of our own building, which is in the Roaring Fork Valley near Aspen, where, as you may know, it gets pretty cold in the winter and bloody hot in the summer. And yet that building has no heating and air conditioning and very comfortable to work in. And also, I assume, net zero with no, no heating and no cooling. That building is by far better than net zero. It's actually delivering uh, power back to the grid on a regular basis. Wow, that is so impressive. Um, wow. Well, speaking of impressive, can you maybe just walk people through your background? Obviously, you've had such a long, illustrious career kind of in the corporate world and now in the sustainability sphere. But can you just walk people through that arc? Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I spent the first 20 years of my career in the private sector, um, briefly at McKinsey, uh, almost 10 years at Shell, where I was on the downstream side and learned about the energy business. And then for almost 10 years, I was a CEO of private equity-backed companies, uh, bought 10 companies out of uh, Philips Industrial Electronics, um, rolled up a number of call center companies, uh, got involved in a few other transactions and had a lot of fun building businesses, uh, but was not really aware of climate change as an issue or the energy transition. And then about um, 12 years ago, uh, I was looking for a way to give back and I started to focus on where are, where are the opportunities to make a difference. And I came to realize that climate change is the biggest issue that faces us as humanity. So I decided to, uh, to focus on that area somewhat naively originally thought that what we needed to do was change policy and drive the rules of the game and got myself elected to parliament. Uh, that was not the most successful career for a former CEO. And um, left to, uh, to become the founding CEO of the European Climate Foundation, which now is the largest philanthropic organization on climate change uh, in Europe. And about seven years ago was asked to uh, returned to the United States. My wife is American, returned to the US. Three of our kids were studying here uh, and, and lead Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, which focuses on transforming global energy use to create a clean, prosperous and secure low carbon future. And uh, uh, over the last seven years, we've significantly grown the Institute to drive our impact in helping companies and industries, but also governments to make that transition to the low carbon energy future. And I know that so much of what you do at RMI is focused on 
corporate responsibility, right? And how do you get corporations to internalize their direct responsibility, culpability, and kind of the imperative to act around the climate crisis? And uh, I read an article that you wrote around Google's kind of 24-7 carbon-free energy approach. And I guess, one, what was so compelling to you about that particular approach? And then as I focus a lot on the real estate industry, I guess what lessons can be gleaned from what Google has done and applied to the real estate industry when you back up and kind of look at the parallels between the two? Yes, let me start with the Google story. And it's, it's quite illustrative for how we think about these things. We want to address climate change. We're going to have to massively reallocate capital from a high carbon economy to a low carbon future. And making that shift requires the economics to stack up. Asking businesses to invest in a way where it doesn't work economically is much more challenging than to do that when the economic wind is in the sails. And so if you look at Google, they jumped on the bandwagon of procuring renewable electricity early. But it is because they saw, because they came to realize that renewable electricity was going to be a cheaper form of electricity while at the same time helping address their carbon footprint. Yes, it was very clear to Google that as one of the largest operators of data centers around the world, uh, their product actually contributes to global warming because the electricity that is used in data centers is enormous and is growing. But what you're saying is that it wasn't, it wasn't purely just ethics. It was ethics and economics, and they happened Absolutely. at the time. These two things came together at a very nice moment in time. And, and Google was early on into this game. They led the way. They demonstrated to others how you needed to do this. And that's what they again did uh, in the fall of last year when they announced their 24-7 strategy. They said, it's not just good enough to sign a power purchase agreement to buy clean electricity from a certain wind park or solar park. We need to actually look at the carbon footprint of our power use and, and our data centers every minute of the day. We now have the technologies to match the supply of clean electricity with our demand for clean electricity, and we're taking it to the next step. So they, they really keep combining this drive for doing good by doing well. And doing well means using the latest technologies, whether it is battery storage or fuel cell backup or modulating their demand to match the supply, with at the same time, uh, keeping a very close eye on the latest technologies and understanding precisely where the economics of clean electricity are going. And they're on the leading edge of that and they're educating other companies in that arena and it's really exciting to be working with them. And I guess one of the questions I have in thinking about the parallel between Google and say a real estate company is at the outset of this, I imagine the technology and the payback periods and the ROIs on the, these early adopted technologies probably weren't as strong as they are today. And so one of my questions is, what, what part of Google's ambition was not just getting to these sustainable energy sources in the future because they understood the economic imperative, but actually investing in the very technologies today? Because those investment dollars, those R&D dollars, is kind of what ultimately drives down the costs and makes these technologies 
financially viable, right? Yeah. So was there a big investment component to it? There definitely was an investment component to it and there has been for a long time. And Google is of course in a unique position that given their, their balance sheet and given their horizon, they can afford to make some new technology investments either in Google X or in, in the Google company, in the Alphabet company itself that have a slightly longer time horizon. But it's also having a clear vision of where this is going to go and wanting to be at the leading edge and doing a little bit more work than the average competitor to have an understanding of where are the prices of renewable electricity going and what can we do now that we maybe weren't able to do uh, three, four years ago. When I talk to people who are active in the real estate industry, there's this deep fundamental belief that you have to have a two, maybe a three-year payback, right? And everything is measured against that, that, that uh, criteria. Some of the investments in energy efficiency in the built environment, some of the investments in the new building technologies are already sort of at that level. You can, you can make those investments and know you can get that payback. But some other investments require a little bit of a longer time horizon. Is it not possible for real estate investors to consider, particularly at these crucial pivotal moments in the life of a building, when you're, when you're, re, re, when you're updating it or when you're releasing it, to consider a slightly longer payback time? And also, do real estate owners and, and building um, industry companies not need to invest a little bit more in the early stage technologies that may not completely pay out today, but are likely to pay out two or three years down the road. I think everybody is now pretty convinced that buildings are going to be smarter and smarter and their di digital technology is going to pay off. But it also holds true, I would think, for the uh, insulation technologies, the modular construction and new construction technologies, and, and uh, the renewable energy technologies associated with buildings. Look, the building industry has not done great in improving its productivity over the time, right? I mean, uh, failure rates and, and, and new technologies take a long, long time to get addressed in the building industry. The adoption of new technologies is slow. So maybe a little bit of patience and a little bit more ambition and sometimes trading off a bit of short-term return for long-term gain is the right thing for the building industry. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the questions that we encounter a lot, some of the pushback when we talk to real estate owners around what they're doing, like what are, what are the actions, what are the steps they're actually taking to mitigate their responsibility in, in, the, in the climate crisis, is they're like, well, we don't invest in technology. Right, that is not what we do. We are in the business of owning or building or operating buildings. That, that, that's our business. It's not a tech business, it's not an energy business. And I guess one of the questions I would have is kind of role playing a bit. If you were sitting in my shoes and we're seeing all these examples, right, from companies like Google that are, they're also not inherently an energy company, but yet they're making investments because they understand the imperative ethical and economic to decarbonize. What would you say to make a real estate owner understand that same imperative from that reflexive, we don't invest in technology position that most of them start with? Well, research after research after research shows 
that if you built an energy efficient building, if you built a building that has no natural gas in it, if you built a building that is uh, physically appealing, your tenants are going to be happier. The employees of your tenants not only are going to be happier, they're even going to be healthier. Uh, you're going to be able to realize a better return per square foot because you are leasing a building that is simply a better or a more beautiful building. So I would think that that is a very compelling argument. And we have published in the past about uh, the value beyond pure energy savings associated with uh, building buildings that are truly sustainable, that are net zero. Uh, the other thing that our recent work has very clearly in, illustrated, and that's more on the residential side than on the commercial side, is the massive impact on residential uh, uh, indoor air quality and therefore on health of eliminating gas out of the built environment. And that's something we're going to have to do. We're going to have to get to net zero emissions. So we're going to take natural gas out of our built environment. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other two things that to me seem just self-evident to the real estate industry, but yet are not in terms of how the real estate industry has internalized its requirement to decarbonize is one, it's very hard to move a building or a house, meaning its subjectivity to climate risk is very high, right? So if you happen to own a commercial asset in Miami, or if you happen to own a home in Northern California, you are imminently experiencing the consequences of the very crisis that your actions or your inactions have wrought. So there's kind of a kind of moral or ethical uh, congruency there that you think would have more of an effect. The first and, and, and foremost opportunity here is to get um, executives across the real estate industry to understand the risks associated with not making the right decisions versus the opportunities of making the right decisions. And you already highlighted the physical asset risks associated with climate change. Built the wrong building in the wrong place in, in California or in um, uh, Miami, and you will at some point face the impacts of climate change. Um, and that is going to be huge. You'd be absolutely a fool if as somebody in the built environment, somebody in the real estate industry, you're making investment decisions without considering those risks. It's almost like what I'd rephrase that as is just don't build on the wrong side of history, right? Because the, the, the potential for functional obsolescence in these buildings from an energy standard perspective is so high. You can't unbuild a building, right? Once it's built, it can become functionally obsolescent much faster than you anticipated. Yeah. And retrofitting is a hell of a lot harder than getting it right from the start. When you come at that pivotal moment in the life of a building where you have an opportunity to do your ones in a, in a 10, 15 year retrofit, take the opportunity to do it right. Do the retrofit to the leading edge of the standards of the, of the technologies so that your building is, is fit for use for the next 15 years. And the technology is emerging very quickly now that, that allows all of that, right? Sometimes it may be three years instead of two years. But if you talk about that transition risk of building the building of the future and not building the, the building of the past, then you want to be investing in the energy efficient technologies that keep that building up to date for, for the future. And it's also important to recognize that uh, all those mindset shifts that we need to see 
in executives in the building space, they're going to be complemented by shifts in regulation and policy and building codes and standards. And that's going to be a big deal as well. And it sounds like, you know, what, what you're saying is a lot of what we think about, which is the real estate industry kind of sits at the intersection of these kind of three unique vectors that are all of which are impelling it to decarbonize. So one is the economic, right, imperative, right? That's kind of just like a blanket imperative that if you can operate a building and you can generate the same amount of economic activity within that building with less energy, that is a consumer surplus. That's a positive for the world, for the building owner, for the tenant, everyone wins in that scenario. But then in terms of where the real estate industry sits, it's situated between the demand side for real estate, which are these tenants like Google that are saying, you, landlord, need to decarbonize in order for me to just occupy your building. So they're getting demand side pressure. Um, you also brought up the regulators, right? And it, it kind of seems like what we've seen in the last four years, right, where we've had this very environmentally regressive uh, federal administration is that local municipalities and local jurisdictions have taken it unto themselves to enact something close to the Paris standard within their jurisdictions, knowing that, you know, real estate taxes are enforced locally, you can't move a building. So New York's carbon neutrality law, Los Angeles's carbon neutrality law are kind of all birds of a feather, right, that are similar to what you see in Europe. Um, and that is now going to come with a federal overlay, as you were saying, from the Biden administration and its climate ambitions. But the third vector that seems to be intersecting with the real estate industry is capital markets. Um, because real estate, I mean, a real estate building, a commercial asset, it's just a physically instantiated bond. It's just a bond that exists in space, right? And so cost of capital drives that business like no other. And I was reading a bit about RMI's Center for Climate Aligned Finance and this consortium of banks that you brought into that. And I'd be really curious, how did you put that together, right? And for a capital markets dependent industry like real estate, how do you think downstream that will affect real estate and its cost of capital? When we started our conversations with the financial industry um, over the last two years, three years, it was when increasingly in finance institutional boardroom after boardroom in bank boardroom after boardroom, the chief risk officer was saying, colleagues, it's interesting. I read this article over the weekend. seems to be something like climate change and it's generating a risk. We've got to pay attention to it. And if there's one thing that banks are good at, it's dealing with risk. Mm -hmm. So this understanding of the physical asset risk and the transition risk, associated with uh, the banking business has been a real trigger for increased dialogue um, with these institutions. Bank executives were starting to be aware of the ESG risk and the physical asset risk and the transition risk and were coming to us to say, what are we going to do about it? Realizing that the climate change embedded in their current portfolio often points to three or even four degrees warming which essentially makes this planet uninhabitable for humanity. So the Center for Climate Line Finance, uh, we convened it initially with some of the largest financial institutions, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, JP Morgan. We've now got a number of other players coming in. And um, is really 
aimed at helping these institutions, not just make a bold announcement about how they're going to deploy their next couple of hundred million into green or sustainable assets, but to really help them understand what is already embedded in the current portfolio. We've done some work with one financial institution to really understand their real estate portfolio. What, what does that real estate portfolio look like from a physical asset risk, from a carbon footprint, from a transition asset risk? And, and they scratch your head and say, oh my golly, we better start thinking about which buildings do we want to finance for the future and which buildings are currently sitting in our portfolio but, but might, might not be the most financially viable assets to be financing going forward. And banks are going to have to make that careful journey, right? Investing in the good stuff, but slowly but sure, surely also addressing the assets currently on their balance sheet that are not sustainable for the future. And Jules, can I ask, I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, there seem to be two components and maybe they're closely tethered together, but there's one, the actual downstream risk, meaning a warming planet has real existential consequences for different kinds of assets based on what they do, based on where they are, based on when they were built, based on a whole number of variables. And that's kind of almost actuarial insurance-like risk in terms of where your capital is deployed. And then there's contributive responsibility, meaning if you are allocating capital to coal, right, you are contributing indirectly to those downstream risks. How closely tethered together are those two things in right, that, that, that construct? Meaning, is it more the former, right? Is it, is it the downstream risk that they're reallocating from? Or is it the culpability and responsibility side of it that they're allocating away from? That's a very important question. Um, we, we have found that it varies by institution and even sometimes varies by individuals in those institutions. Not all the banks that joined the Center for Climate Aligned Finance from the get-go had the same assessment of that moral responsibility and that physical and transition asset risk. Um, and not every individual we're talking with is motivated as much from one side as the other. But what we're finding is that as we get into the dialogue and as an appreciation emerges of how these two things are to some extent linked, companies are becoming better at linking them in their own minds and linking them into uh, what they do in the marketplace. Um, I would say that uh, not every one of our fellow civil society organizations in this space has necessarily fully understood why do you guys always work with energy incumbents? Or in this case, why do you guys work with some of the largest financial institutions that have financed so much of the fossil fuel industry? And our response has been, because if we can't shift capital in those large institutions, we're never gonna get there. And if some of these institutions first move their capital because it makes economic sense, and then later come to the understanding that it is also morally and ethically the right thing to do, then that's fine with us. If others want to work with us because they believe it's the morally right thing to do and then quickly start to realize that it also has huge economic benefits, then that is also fine. There is a, a virtuous circularity to these two things, and we should all be rooting for people to get to the right conclusions no matter what. And maybe this, that's a good segue into... The last thing I wanted to ask you, because, you know, whenever I have the opportunity to speak to someone like yourself, I always want to ask for advice on how I do 
my job better, right? And I think about my job is how do I convince these large, super institutional, multi-geography real estate owners to accept, number one, accept their responsibility in the climate crisis, and then two, take positive action to affect it. And then we cross into kind of what we talked about before, which is why would I, as a real estate owner, make investments into sustainable energy solutions today? Because wasn't there already this green tech boom before it? And wasn't that a big failure and a big bust? And why don't I just rely on private markets to finance these businesses instead of me having to do that? And then the onus shifts to me to convince them otherwise. I'm just curious, as you think about that, like, how would you think about positively persuading them to see that light, right? To see either side of that virtuous circularity as to why you should do this. How would you make that case? I do think that it begins with chief execs taking the responsibility and understanding the issue of climate change fundamentally. Mm -hmm. To me, it is striking that some of the best businesses that we work with have made the effort, have invested the time and energy to really deeply understand. I was talking recently to the chairman of one of the largest international oil and gas companies, and he told me how he had forced his board to sit through a whole day with three climate scientists to learn deeply and fundamentally what the implications are, economic, financial, real world, and morally and ethically of climate change. And uh, the first step I would recommend um, every one of your partners and, and allies in the real estate industry take is to inform themselves, to learn about this, to read up, to get somebody to come talk to their board or their management team, to spend some time during their next retreat, to deeply understand how is the real estate market and how is my industry going to be impacted by climate change, physical risks, transition risks, et cetera. That's the first step. And once people do that, there's no hiding there anymore, right? Because there is no question about the science. It's all pretty darn crystal clear. So then, then we, we have the facts on the table. This industry is going to be dramatically different 20 years from now because people want sustainable buildings. People want healthy buildings, buildings that don't use natural gas, buildings that don't emit greenhouse gases, buildings that were built with sustainable materials, beautiful building. Those are the buildings that are going to sell, that are going to rent out in the future. Well, then I need to align my business with that. Oh, golly. Now I need to make sure that the strategy for my business is aligned with that better understanding of the future. I'm going to have to take my responsibility. I have to make sure that I know that by 2050, my portfolio is net zero. It doesn't emit any greenhouse gases anymore. And I can't just wait till 2050 because the buildings I'm building now are still going to be around in the middle of the century. So I need to start investing today in capabilities and competencies in technologies and in the first pilots and the first buildings that are going to demonstrate that this actually works. And then once real estate people have done those two steps, then they can also use their voice, their voice with policymakers and regulators you know what, we need to get to a net zero building code because that's where we need to be by the middle of the century. 
So then uh, once they've understood the problem, aligned their own strategy, they can start using their voice externally uh, to be the advocates of the future in the real estate world that we want to see. Those would be my three recommendations to your, your partners, your investors, your allies. Not everybody's going to listen, right? Focus on the ones that, that listen, that want to be at the front. They're going to be more profitable anyway. They're going to be more successful commercially anyway. And once that starts to happen, the laggards are quickly coming to the game, I'm sure. There's two things that are, that are so striking about what you just said. One is that the initiative needs to start at the top. And that is something that we've seen. Um, you can have all the bureaucracy, you can have all the heads of sustainability you want, but if the CEO is not truly committed, nothing will happen. And so in terms of changing hearts and minds in the real estate industry, there's honestly a few thousand people on earth that can do this. There's really like 3,000 of them. I hope they're watching this. Um, but those 3,000 are where we need to focus our time and attention because a lot of the work being done downstream within their organizations is valuable, but it's not consequential enough. You need to take bigger, uh, riskier, um, just you know, uh, momentous changes you need to take to your business and that needs to start with the CEO. And the second thing that I, I hadn't really thought about until you just said it is the capacity for the real estate industry to have a voice and for that voice to be disseminated across different channels because a building can educate, right? Um, you know, when you walk into a building and you see LEED, you know, standard or you see Energy Star, um, you just inherently think about the energy consumption of that building and how you could actually reduce that. Um, and I guess one of the things that's exciting is like, I think the most forward-looking, environmentally progressive CEOs in the real estate industry are going to start to advocate for sustainability on a different scale than they did previously. And that not only affects their industry, but it affects all the tenants that are occupying their building. There's a way of inculcating them physically. They are, they are living, they are domiciled, right? They are, they are sequestered inside those, hopefully, carbon zero assets. And that can have a downstream consumer educational effect that I think is profound. Um, it's a really interesting point I hadn't really thought through, um, but we should all be rooting for. Um, well, Jules, this has been so interesting to get your thoughts on all this. Thank you so much for sharing them. Brendan, it's been a pleasure to be on your, uh, on your podcast and uh, I look forward to working together with your team uh, and with real estate professionals that want to go on that journey all around the world. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, thanks, Jules. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.